This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Kylie Soans, urban conservation biologist at the University of Melbourne. Kylie joined me to discuss the State of the Environment Report released by the Federal Government. With the report indicating that urban environments are the only environments that are marked as good and neutral in condition, Kylie and I discuss whether this is a true and accurate reflection of our urban ecologies in Australia. In fact, Australia's cities and towns are home to more than 46% of threatened species. Kylie talks about the different actions that people can take in their own backyards, in our cities and urban areas, to protect and conserve nature. I'm really delighted to welcome on to Uncommon Sense, Dr. Kylie Soans. Kylie is a conservation biologist with a focus on urban ecology. She is a research fellow at the School of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences at the University of Melbourne. And Kylie is going to be chatting with me about the State of the Environment Report, which just came out last Tuesday, I believe. It was released by this Labor federal government, but it was essentially sitting completed at the minister's desk around December last year. The coalition government decided not to release it. I guess they were expecting an election and that might have been a rationale or factor in their decision-making. Susan Lee was the Environment Minister at the time and now we have Tanya Plibersek as the Federal Environment Minister. Obviously, the State of the Environment report is a, a really crucial one and we'll find out why in just a moment. Carly will talk about that, but also her particular research interests in how we save species in cities, in our cities here in Australia. Obviously, Melbourne being a really important one and one that's very close to home here at Triple R and also, no doubt, for Kylie at the University of Melbourne. So I welcome Kylie onto the show and thank you very much for joining us. No, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. And um, I was really, really interested in your commentary around the State of the Environment report. This was something that was really long awaited. There were many people in the scientific community calling for this report to be released, especially during the election. I think it was something that scientists believed and others believed should be accessible to the general public for us to know what's happening to our environment. Unfortunately, that didn't happen, but we do at least now know what has been the findings in this report, and it is a pretty huge piece of work. It does have things that are quite new in in the way that it essentially talks about climate change finally as if it's here and not necessarily something that's a future event, but it also does involve First Nations people in a very significant way and also analyses some of their programs that mean that they're able to provide us with the knowledge and the insight and also their expertise in managing the land. So it's really exciting that those areas have finally made it into this report, but obviously there are some serious findings in it too. I wonder, could you just share with us perhaps the headline message from this State of the Environment report before we delve into urban environments? Yeah, look, unfortunately, it's not a, a particularly pleasant headline message. And what the report has shown is that essentially every habitat type, every kind of ecosystem that we have in Australia um, and threatened species in general are in decline. Um, so the report is done every five years and they assess um, how well our ecosystems are travelling, 
how well our threatened species are traveling, how many have recovered, how many new ones are being added and what those current threats are. And it looks at these across a, a range of different landscape types like marine and urban and forest. And yes, unfortunately, everything got a pretty negative scorecard in this report. And it, it's, it's very much time for us to wake up and act and respond to this. Yeah. And obviously, we've had some catastrophic events, environmental events and, and natural disasters that have occurred. You know, the bushfires of most recent memory are one. There's also the flooding that has been fairly constant in Queensland and New South Wales in recent months as well. There's obviously been drought previous to that. Many other pressures on our planet, huge numbers of it, land clearing being another one, feral predators being another that comes up in these conversations a lot. What do you perceive to be some of the major or the most important pressures for us to consider that the report has really highlighted? Yeah, look, when you put it like that, it's, the environment's really copacaning, hasn't it? In the, yeah. Especially in the last 10 years and the people that, that live there, obviously. Mm. I've got a family in northern New South Wales and, you know, it felt like just when they were getting over the fires, there were the floods and um, it just keeps on going. I guess for me, the most important thing to do is to protect the habitat that we have left. So, you know, the natural environment can be quite resilient. It gets used to there being fire or floods, um, obviously not as frequently or as severe as is happening now. But the less habitat that we have, the less forests, the less grasslands, the less intact habitat, the more pressure it comes under because each one of these freak weather events that are becoming less and less freak has a bigger bigger impact. It has a bigger cost because if there's not that much left and we keep losing what we have every you know, two years to major fires, we're, we're really starting to get to the very scarce end of the stick. Yeah, it is really concerning. And obviously the State of the Environment report makes some key findings. One of them is what we've essentially said, that the environment is in a poor and deteriorating state. And there are many effects uh, that it outlines as being an issue, like climate change, mining, pollution, invasive species, habitat loss, as you've pointed out. These are issues that are not new to politicians, and they're certainly not new to conservation scientists. It's something, I guess, that makes you wonder, are we going to make the progress that's needed so that the next state of environment report is not going to be as dire as it has been or even more dire, um, depending on how climate change accelerates. One of the suggestions or one of the policy measures that the federal government says it is going to do um, or adopt is a new target of protecting 30% of Australia's land by 2030. I guess it sounds like a good target, but I did want to get a sense from you about what you thought of that proposal and, and suggestion that the federal government would adopt this target. Do you think that that's enough, given how much land clearing and habitat loss has already occurred? Yeah, look, that's a really, it's a really interesting and really tricky question because, you know, as you said, those targets always sound really fantastic. And it's always nice if you can say 30 by 2030 or something that has a nice mm. little bit of alliteration like that. But they have to be done very carefully and they have to be responding to where the needs are the most. You know, so in the past, something that's happened with where our national parks and reserves are is it tends to be the leftover bits of land, you know, the lands that we didn't really want to do anything else with anyway. So rocky mountains that couldn't be um, used for grazing or agriculture or were too hard to, to build on for living. 
that tends to be where all of our, our big reserves are, whereas more the, the low-lying productive areas, there's not as many, um, not as much protected land there. So I guess it's, it's easy to say that you're going to protect certain sections of land, um, but making sure that that's actually responding to where the threats are and protecting systems that are already under threat is really tricky. Mm. I guess the other issue is, how, what does protected mean? You know, what does that mean in terms of access? What does that mean for the people that live already in those landscapes? Um, there's some real uh, ethical and justice issues about how that land is managed, whether it means completely excluding people or depriving people of their livelihoods on those areas. So it's, it's a really complicated issue that needs to be done really sensitively. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And one of the other elements to this report is that broad areas of the environment have been given a rating. And we saw areas like climate, extreme events, land and soil, inland water and coasts rated as poor and deteriorating. Then we saw areas like the marine environment and Antarctica rated as good and deteriorating. We saw air marked as very good and deteriorating. And finally, at the better end of the scale, urban environments as good and neutral. So there's no deterioration and it's good, which I was quite surprised about given how much we've seen development encroach on areas of land like, as we've discussed on this show, the native grasslands out in the suburbs and how that affects some of the species, obviously the plants that are affected by that as well with huge amounts of development, the orchids, you know, that feature on the sides of roads and in paddocks. So, yeah, I just wondered what your reflections were on that, given you have your own research focus on urban environments. Do you think that this rating is indicative of the reality or, or do you think that perhaps the criteria might be different to what you might use to assess the urban ecology? Yeah, I think it's the latter. Um, it's mm. definitely, I think the criteria for the urban environment are focused very much on livability for people. So, you know, they acknowledge that we have a housing affordability and accessibility crisis and that livability is lower in a lot of smaller urban communities than in larger cities. But it very much looked at the way that urban environments provide for people in terms of air quality and ecosystem services and accessibility. Um, I'd be really curious as to what kind of information they even had at hand on the ecology of urban environments because it's something that we we often don't have a good broad understanding of, you know, where species are, what patches in a city actually count as habitat and, and provide for wildlife. I don't think that that's, that's something that we know and that's actually an area of research that I'm looking into at the moment is how do we map urban habitats? How do we understand how species that live in cities are trending um, and how can we help local governments and community groups and people that are working in these spaces get a much better idea of what they're working with and what they can do to help? Yeah, well, it's a really interesting point that you make and it reinforces what I thought when I was reading the report or that particular section because I was waiting for more mention of the ecology, threatened species, um, and it, it did really did seem to have a very human-centric focus. So I appreciate you clarifying that element. And one of the things that I guess then is surprising is 
because you point out in your conversation article about the State of the Environment report that, in fact, Australia's cities and towns are home to more than 96% of our human population, but they're also home to 46% of threatened species. That's a kind of statistic that perhaps some people may not be aware of, especially the proportion, the huge proportion of threatened species all around us in areas that are literally where we're living right now and perhaps riding through and walking through. What are your reflections on the the levels of threatened species that do exist in urban environments? Was it ever a surprise to you, you know, even at the very beginning when you started in this area? Yeah, look, the reason that we started in this area is because I grew up in um, in the sort of northwestern suburbs of Melbourne before moving to regional Victoria. And, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't really have, there wasn't a lot of trees out in the west. Um, you know, I just remember it being hot and dry and artichoke thistles everywhere. Um, <laughs> so, you know, for me, that was still the place that I got nature. It wasn't particularly nice nature, but I knew that having access to nature in cities was was important. And when I tried to move into this area of, you know, can we do nature conservation in cities? I felt like I was constantly rebuffed by comments like, well, there's nothing that valuable there. And even if there is, there's not that much you can do about it. So a group of scientists and I started this research to, to actually really look, you know, how, how much attention have we paid to what's around us in cities? And we started by taking the list of all of Australia's threatened species and where they lived and overlaying that with maps of where Australia's urban boundaries were. And that's when we, we realised that a huge chunk of our threatened species actually spend a lot of their time in cities. Some of them live within cities all of their lives. Some of them just visit on part of their seasonal migration. So things like the orange-bellied parrot and swift parrot, you know, these are high-profile, adorable parrots that fly all the way from Tasmania to hang out at our sewage treatment plants or the flowering gums in the middle of the roundabout in, in Parkville. So, you know, our cities are providing for threatened species in a way that we hadn't previously considered. And it does surprise a lot of people. But what that shows us is that there's an opportunity for everyone living within a city to actually contribute to this broader conservation goal. And one of the tools that you reference in your piece is the Threatened Species in Cities website that people can actually head to. It's threatenedspeciesincities.org. And there's a map there, which means you can actually find broadly your local area. So, you know, if you're living in the central area of Victoria, you can check out Bendigo. And if you're down on the coast, you can check out the Surf Coast and uh, the Ballerine. And if you live near Geelong, you can check that out. Obviously, Melbourne and the various parts of Melbourne as well. And, you know, see the number of species that at that time when the, the map was created and updated, I believe it was in October 2020, which species are found in the city, uh, found on the edge of the city and were historically found but now aren't. And I did find that data very illuminating, especially for Melbourne, where there are, at that time when the map was created, 46 that were listed um, in the city. And these are incredible uh, plants and animals as well. You know, in Melbourne, we've got growling grass frogs, which if you're not familiar, they're an animal that does exactly what that says on the tin. You know, they're a big bright green frog that lives in the grassy areas around waterways and quite literally growls. That's what it's called, sounds like. We have southern brown bandicoots down in the southwest um, hanging out in people's backyards and golf courses and we have these incredible orchids 
scattered all throughout the city in these these remnant patches. And another thing that we really, um, something that I really liked about this research was we found that these species aren't just hiding out in nature reserves. They're in our backyards. They're in our roadsides. They're hanging out in cemeteries and sewage treatment plants and all of these in-between spaces in cities that we visit and walk past every single day. And so you highlight in your piece a lot of those species but also some of the interventions that have happened from a community level, from a research and scientific level, uh, a council level. So there are a lot of ways that people can get involved in different species to support them and make sure that they're safe to ensure that their population numbers don't dwindle further. And I wonder, could you take us through some of those particular initiatives? I mean, you mentioned their backyards and in the piece you talk about the Gardens for Wildlife initiative, which one of our listeners was actually working on a, an info sheet about it. They t- they texted in a couple of weeks ago. So that sounds like you know something that is relevant for pretty much everyone, even if they have a balcony with a kind of garden on it. I wonder, could you take us through some of those things that people do have control over in their backyards and more in their immediate communities? Yeah, look, I mean, Gardens for Wildlife is a fantastic example. And I think what I like about examples like Gardens for Wildlife or even the Heart Gardening Project in Melbourne is it's about taking all of these small actions and everybody just doing their little bit, but then looking at them as a collective. If, you know, if a, a thousand people decide they're going to turn their garden into a wildlife garden that caters for, you know, superb fairy wrens or eastern spinebills or, or some other amazing bush bird that we can have in cities, suddenly you've got a landscape scale impact. So wildlife gardening is a really easy one, even if you do have just a balcony. So Gardens for Wildlife have really fantastic guides for whatever your garden looks like, whatever its size is, whatever its shape, but also your own personal tastes about what you want your garden to look like. I think there's a real misconception that wildlife gardening means you have to have six dirty great big gum trees and leaf litter everywhere and absolutely no lawn and, and all of these things. And, you know, there's no need to take it to extremes just to provide for nature. I've got a lot of non-native trees in my backyard and I see eastern spinebills, you know, eating my camellias and blue-banded bees visiting my rosemary bush. So we don't have to feel like we can. We need to be excluded just because we can't have um, wild nature paradise in our yards. But wildlife gardening is a really fantastic way to do it. Yeah, and there's a fantastic infographic in your piece about creating a B&B for native birds and yeah. the types of flowers and trees that they love. And, you know, it is very illuminating what you've shared in there you know, the seed eaters, the fruit eaters, the nectar eating birds and the insect eaters as well. And, you know, insects, some people have, as we've heard on my show last week, a kind of a mixed relationship with. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but if we're thinking about our backyards, obviously there are those birds. Do you think that we should also be trying to facilitate other mammals or, you know, what are some of the other types of species that we should be thinking about looking after? Yeah, look, I think insects are a really big one and they're quite an overlooked one. Um, mm. So we we know that there are thousands, thousands of more insects in Australia, insect species, than we have actually described, um, which means when it comes to doing things like state of environment reports, we actually we can't tell how many we have or if they're declining or how to protect them. 
So catering for insects and providing insect-friendly spaces is, is really helpful. And, you know, people tend to think of mozzies. It's not all about um, just because you do something nice for insects doesn't mean you're going to be slapping your legs every time you walk out to the front yard. But, you know, creating, having little patches of leaf litter, having little patches of bare soil where our native bees can actually burrow and you know, lay their eggs. And you, I don't know if you've ever seen native bees, but I saw my first blue banded bee in person um, a couple of years ago. Yep. And it just blew my mind. They're, they're like a little teddy bear. And we actually have teddy bear bees now that I've said that. The diversity of our native bee and insect species is absolutely mind-blowing. Um, and there's an incredible book for people in Melbourne called The Little Things That Run the City. And it's an illustrated children's book that actually describes some of the really wild and wonderful insects that you can find in your backyard and things that you can do to look after them. Excellent. Well, I'll share that with everyone on social media. And yeah, I did actually see a blue banded bee as well a couple of years ago, trying to pollinate my tomato plants. And I yeah, think they were doing a great job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a really good year that year. And I don't think I remember seeing them subsequently as many times, it, despite my best efforts to attract them with different types of plants. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was really exciting and they're so bright and they're really quick. Yeah, yeah. And they're very loud. I um, mm. They have this way of pollinating plants that's different to honeybees. It's called buzz pollination, where they literally grip onto the flower and just headbang the bejesus out of it until all the pollen falls off. Um, <laughs> and so we actually have some native plants that can only be pollinated by native insects because, you know, the gentle caress of the honeybee doesn't cut it. So making sure that we have those native insects is actually really key to making sure some of our native plants can survive. And as you pointed out, they're absolutely excellent at pollinating your tomatoes. Yes, they are. Um, I'm really hoping this season's better and it's not as moist for the tomatoes. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And I also saw that there is a fabulous bee and insect hotel at the University of Melbourne System Garden, which I put up on our promotional photo for this week. So people could just reference it and have a look at one that is particularly artistic and beautiful, I've got to say. That is one example. Of course, not everyone would have something so elaborate, but that's yes. another thing you could do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, Gardening Australia, um, the ABC website, have a pretty amazing set of fact sheets about creating insect hotels in your own yard. And you don't need fancy equipment. You can make it with recycled things and they can be you know, nice and small in a sunny spot about a metre off the ground so they don't get wet and boggy. But, you know, a little collection of bamboo together, a cinder block packed with clay mud and some, or just a block of wood with a few holes from about three millimetres wide to 10 millimetres wide and say 10 centimetres deep drilled into it. And you've already created um, a really handy habitat for our native insects. And it's really important because these tend to be the things that get cleaned up in cities, you know, we try and make mm. things neat and tidy, but it takes away a lot of that absolutely critical nesting sites for insects and lizards and frogs and, you know, our, our wonderful native mammals. So being able to put some of those uh, hotels back is a, a really great thing to do. Indeed, yeah. And I'm thinking in relation to insects, of course, orchids and the role of the wasp as well, you know, we do have some really amazing orchids in Australia, especially even here in Melbourne, which you talk about. There's one that I think, let me check the name. It was like the Frankston something orchid. 
The Frankston spider orchid, yes. That's right, the Frankston <laughs> spider orchid. And there's also one um, in sunshine as well that's specific to yes. sunshine now. The sunshine diuris, yeah. So the, both the sunshine diuris and Frankston spider orchid are examples of what we've called urban restricted threatened species. So there are 39 threatened species in Australia that only occur in cities now. They don't occur anywhere else outside of the city. They don't occur anywhere else in the world. Cities in Australia are the last chance for us to save them from extinction. And for both the Frankston and Sunshine orchids, those people in those communities have done that. You know, they've rallied with thousands of hours of volunteer work, hand-weeding sites to make sure that, you know, escaped garden plants don't squash out the habitat for the orchids. And they've put the reserve under guard at one point to make sure that arsonists weren't setting fire to it at the wrong time of year or that people weren't coming to collect it and try and put it in their gardens, which I should point out won't work because <laughs> orchids have very, very particular uh, requirements, unfortunately. But people have really rallied behind these species in their neighbourhoods. I mean, it's the sunshine diurus from sunshine. What a fantastic way to just take ownership and care of nature in your environment. Absolutely. And they're really beautiful they're just yeah, really striking. Yeah. Yeah. I hope people can find that. There's also one picture of, um, I think it's the Frankston spider orchid for the picture on our social media too. And one of the interventions or innovations that is quite striking visually are some of these tunnels, wildlife tunnels that are created. Yep. You know, one you put up on your piece was obviously from Brisbane. There's some underroad wildlife tunnels at the Cranbourne Gardens. How do these tunnels work and what kind of species are they targeting? Yeah, I could have written a whole piece about that. And I have actually, if I'm yeah. being honest. Um, so these these wildlife bridges and wildlife tunnels are a really fantastic way to help animals get across roads. We have them all over Australia now. Um, not so many of the big forested overpasses, but the tunnels and even rope bridges for some of our sugar gliders and possums, um, helping them get across roads. Because roads are pretty tricky for a lot of mammals to get across. Anyone who's done a bit of a road trip will notice the carcasses on the side of the road that attest to that. And so if we can provide them a safe passage to get from one side to the other, they can access all the food and all the mates and all the resources that they need to safely. And that's better for them and also better for drivers. Uh, so there's a tunnel around the Cranbourne area for bandicoots that they put in for a new road. Um, I think it's in Kui Ruck. And they put up cameras and have already started to see the bandicoots using the underpass. There's a great example from Perth of rope bridges in urban areas. I think it's around Bunbury for an endangered possum called the Western Ringtail Possum. And people are even trying to build little mini bridges for this possum in their backyard so that it can safely get through the urban area without having to come down on the grounds where, you know, your dogs and cats might be. So... These bridges are a really wonderful way to connect up habitats and help animals move through what can be a pretty tricky uh, landscape to get mm. through safely. Yeah, and one thing you point out and you've mentioned is that clearly there are some nature reserves in urban environments, but that is not the predominant way that we could save species. There are all these strips and patches of land that are very you know, all over the place, I guess. And there are some projects that you've mentioned that are trying to kind of connect them up and create a corridor. The Melbourne Pollinator Corridor is one of them. And it kind of does strike me as something that local councils would be really 
ideal for in the sense that they do have control over a lot of nature strips and public areas that may not be part of private land. Are there heartening things that councils are doing beyond these tunnels as one of the examples to make use of this these little patchy kind of havens? Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, Melbourne City Council recently trialled putting in native streetscapes. So basically between a concrete wall and the footpath that you walk past every day, they're finding ways to plant some of our really amazing native grasses and wildflowers as well as some bee hotels and and habitats for lizards in these really, really urbanised, very, very small patchy spaces. You know, even converting existing underused spaces back into natural habitats is something that councils are doing more and more. So if you think of areas of creek that are concreted over or buried underground, a lot of councils are starting to do daylighting projects um, in conjunction with groups like Melbourne Water where they'll dig up the concrete and restore this ugly drainage ditch back into a thriving creek with, you know, vegetation and fish and birds and all of these beautiful natural things that a waterway should be. So there's, you know, there are, it's, it's in pockets. There are particular groups and particular areas that are working really hard at it. But I also find that it's contagious. So once one council sees that another council has done something really well and it's worked, they go, oh, I'd like a bit of that. Why can't we try that here? Or, you know, someone sees that their neighbour's wildlife garden has suddenly attracted superb fairy rents. They're like, oh, I'd love to have fairy rents at my house. Maybe I'll do what they've done. And I think for me that's the most heartening thing is that by being really visible and sharing our knowledge, other people are jumping on board and it's just going to start to spread like a good kind of wildfire across the city. Yes, exactly. One thing I would add is that, you know, we focused on threatened species as a hook, you know, to kind of Mm. prove to people that urban areas shouldn't be overlooked. But nature conservation in cities is so much more than endangered species. You know, the connections that people have with the wildlife in their backyard, the stories that people come to me with about, you know, the one kingfisher that they always know is sitting on that exact tree on their walk to, to work in the morning or, you know, the way that every year at the same time someone will see a gangang cockatoo feeding on the tree out the front. You know, people have these connections and they're noticing um, these kinds of species in their environment. And I think we really just need to tap into that and recognise that and empower people to be able to to care for their environment in a way that's good for everyone. Mm. And I know that people listening absolutely do want to do that because uh, we always get that feedback and that they're already doing it in many different ways. So, yeah, it's really heartening to hear not only that the science is progressing in this area, because it, I know it does sound like it must have been a little bit of an uphill battle to yeah. get some <laughs> get some traction, but, you know, to also have such passionate individuals in Melbourne who already love their environment. They love Mary Creek, for example, but, you know, there's more than just walking through Mary Creek. You know, you can now do so many different things around you to, to protect the environment. So thank you so much, Kylie. It's just been wonderful chatting with you and very uplifting in a very dire kind of circumstance. So I appreciate so that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Despite the reality in urban environments being a little more poor than than good and neutral yes. as, as according <laughs> to the State of the Environment Report. So, yeah, I want to say a big thank you to all the work you're doing at the University of Melbourne and in the community and uh, appreciate your time today. Thank you so much.
I've just been chatting with Dr. Kylie Soans. She's a conservation biologist with a focus on urban environments and is a research fellow at the University of Melbourne. And we've just been talking about the state of the environment report, as well as Kylie's conversation article. She's written a number of them, so you can check it out on the conversations website. The title is, Yes, the state of the environment is grim, but you can make a difference right in your own neighbourhood. It was published on July 21st.